Adam Horbach sent me a, an article this week written by a young pastor who is a millennial. It's hard to believe there's millennial pastors these days. It's already, we're getting old. His name was Eric Tonjes, and the name of the article was called The Old Ways. And interestingly enough, he is critiquing the argument that is often given today that the reason churches are failing to reach millennials is because we're outdated and we need to modify our message as a result in order to reach an appeal to a younger, hipper audience. He's critiquing that as a millennial, which is very refreshing. Here's what he writes. I can tell you exactly how to get millennials in your pews. You can tell them their moms and dads were horribly wrong and misguided. And that they are actually much better informed and more correct than their parents. Just like they've always suspected. And then you explain that actually Christianity is exactly what all the cool people they want to be like say it should be. And they will come because that is a brand that sells. Who doesn't want their youthful arrogance stroked and the social cost of their faith removed? But it won't last. The problem with such attempts to draw millennials through a, a reworking of Christianity is that it won't endure. It can't. If you make your theology like you make an Apple product, you are guaranteed that people will love to buy it. And secondly, it won't last much past the launch of next year's model. The thing you need is iJesus 7. It's like iJesus 6, but with all the bits you didn't like, didn't like removed. This apparently outdated faith is what has animated the church for 2,000 years. It is bread and wine and baptism and creed and a bloody cross and an empty tomb that sustained martyrs and missionaries and monks and men and women in the field through wars and famines and persecution and a hundred changes of generations. Abandoning it is like dismissing a cathedral because the tent we bought has so many cutting-edge features. That's good. This is what I want and what I need, not a message that will put young rear ends into pews for a year or two, but one that can carry them for 80 or 90 years, which isn't something any of these latest and greatest theological reimaginings has to offer. Tanja's call to go back to the old ways, which is the title of his article. And the old ways he's referring to is what Jeremiah calls, in our text tonight, the ancient paths. Don't you love that description? The ancient paths. Look with me in verse 16. Thus says the Lord. Authority is being established with this phrase, Jeremiah is saying, 
you may not like what I'm about to say, but that's irrelevant. Because God's authority is coming to bear. Thus says the Lord. Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths. Where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. Now, he's envisioning that the people of God, Judah, has come to a a fork in the road. Yogi Berra says that when you come to a fork in the road, you take it. But actually, without a GPS system, a fork in the road is quite stifling, isn't it? And Jeremiah is using this as a metaphor, and he's saying when a person or our group of persons comes to a, a crossroads spiritually and morally, there's only one set of directions to ask for. Ask, he says, for the ancient paths. There's an old Latin phrase that I came across uh, this week. Via trita, via tuta. Don, you already know that, don't you? The worn way is the safe way. Isn't that a great line? The worn way is the safe way. Let me give you that Latin again. Via trita, via tuta. The worn way is the safe way. In other words, in the wilderness... It is wise to walk on the well-beaten path. And he's not talking, Jeremiah's not talking about going back to the 1950s culture. That's not what he's talking about. That's not the past he's referring to. He's referring to the Word of God. The psalmist often compares the Word of God to a pathway. In fact, in the the chapter in the Bible that is so centered on the Scripture more than any other, Psalm 119, you see this often. Let me just give you a few of these. Psalm 119, verse 32. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. He's saying that it's a heart issue to walk in the way of God's commandments. It begins with the heart. In other words, our lack of walking in the way is due to a restricted heart. And here he says, when God enlarges my heart, in other words, it begins with grace, begins with mercy, it begins with the power of the Spirit, I will walk in your way. Verse 35 of Psalm 119, lead me in the path of your commandments. For I delight in it. So the commandments are a path. Psalm 119 verse 59. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. So the testimonies there are, are seen as a, as a way, a path in which to walk. Then you look at Psalm 119, 104. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Through understanding that God gives us by his precepts, he says, 
I hate every false way. He's able to discern the false way from the true way. Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And then Psalm 119, 133. Keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. And so the psalmist uses that metaphor of steps according to your promise. So the promise is the way, the path for the steps. And then the last verse of the psalm, verse 176, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. There's four verbs in verse 16 that describe how this good way is found. Notice in verse 16, stand, look, ask, and walk. God is sovereign. Our salvation is all of grace from beginning to end. That's the ground of our hope. And yet we are responsible agents. Those two truths are compatible with one another. We, we need to keep that in mind. We are responsible agents. And we are responsible to stand, look, and ask, and walk. So much at stake. The good way, notice, the good way that we're to walk is the way that God approves. It is the way that is best for us. Sometimes I think we have this persistent problem of believing that God is a killjoy. And actually what God wants to kill is the things that kill our joy. God has made us in such a way that our capacity to flourish is directly related and intimately related to what brings Him glory. Until we believe that, we're going to believe He's a holdout and we're going to go horizontal looking for what only God can give us. Our hearts have been hardwired by Him. And He knows how our hearts best function. I'm reminded of a true story of a, a man when the first Model T came out. He was, his car broke down and he's on the side of the road trying to fix the, the engine and this old man pulls up and he says, can I look under your hood? And the man says, there's nothing you can do. I couldn't fix it. You're not going to be able to fix it. The old man looks under the hood and with a couple of turns here and there, the engine cranked right up. The man looked in shock at the old man. And the old man said, my name is Henry Ford. <laughs> and he said, I made this engine. And I know what makes it work. When the text tells us that it's the good way, he is saying this is the way to human flourishing. Indeed, note the fruit of taking the ancient path, the good way. He says, you will find rest for your souls. You will find rest for your souls. I would submit to you, to paraphrase Blaise Pascal, everything a person does 
is motivated by this longing for rest. That's why drug addicts are drug addicts. That's why people are addicted to porn. That's why there are serial adulterers. Is because of this longing for rest. And here the text tells us rest is a gift from God. And yet there's responsibility involved on our part. We are to stand and ask and walk in the good way, the good path. But even with the promises of these ancient paths, such is our sinfulness, we don't naturally see the good path as good to us. That goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Such was Judah's condition. Notice in the second part of verse 16. But they say, we will not walk in it. We will not walk in that good path. Why? Because they don't believe fundamentally that God is good. So how can a God who is not good have a good path? They believe that they've got to find the good path. That's the human dilemma. In his first inaugural address, President Roosevelt asserted that the USA had lost its way. And here's what he said. We don't know where we're going, but we are on our way. Jeremiah would have said the same exact thing. That's essentially what he's saying about his times. And really, it is the height of insanity to have the good and restful way set before us, but to want nothing of it. It comes down to unbelief. It comes down to idolatry. And so God, in his mercy, offers them some help. Notice verse 17. I set watchmen over you, saying, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. But they say, we will not pay attention. So over the centuries and over through many prophets, God had warned his people of the consequences of continued disobedience. Again, I want us to remember the old covenant faith is not a covenant of works. They were saved the same way we are saved. They were saved by grace alone. If it was by works... No one under the Old Covenant would have been saved. It, it has always been all of grace. So when we speak of disobedience, he's not saying you are being judged because you haven't ascended the moral ladder fervently enough. The disobedience is the fruit of apostasy. The disobedience is the fruit of unbelief. The disobedience is the fruit of idolatry, of misplaced love. That's the issue. And so God had raised up these prophets that he called watchmen on the wall. And he charged them to, to scan the horizon for approaching danger and to sound the alarm. You see similar language with Ezekiel. But even with the trumpet of the watchman's Voices, they were inattentive. And so notice in verse 18, God summons the, the, the nations and the earth to witness to their foolishness. Therefore, hear, O nations, 
And know, O congregation, what will happen to them. Hear, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster upon this people. It's like he's speaking to the earth because the inanimate creation hears better than his people. So he is speaking to the earth, hoping that they will eavesdrop on the conversation. That's the metaphor. It's, it's, it's sarcasm. It's, it's holy sarcasm. The fruit of their devices. Because they have not paid attention to my words. And as for my law, they have rejected it. And the law being the old covenant. The Mosaic covenant. The, the Sinai covenant. The covenant God had given Israel so that, that, that thy, they would be a, a kingdom of priests and light to the nations. Remember, that plot of land was the, was the central travel path for all of the, the developed nations around. And so Israel was uniquely situated to be a light. And the way they were to be a light was in covenantal faithfulness to their Lord, their God. And yet, they had disregarded this calling. Now, I want you to keep in mind, again, this is important, especially in the first six chapters, because the context of the first six chapters is Jeremiah is prophesying during a time of reform. Remember, the book of the law, which is likely Deuteronomy, has been found... In the temple, now whether it was intentionally misplaced or it had been lost, we can debate over that. But Josiah was bringing about these great reforms. And so outwardly, Judah had never been more religious. And so it would have been very strange to people, let's just use 21st century language, to people who are at church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and are in the choir and teach Sunday school, to hear this prophet condemning their infidelity and their sin and their idolatry. Their self-righteousness had covered up, was a masking agent for their true condition. They were religious, but it's possible to be religious and not esteem the Word of God. Now, I can say this because I grew up there. I can tell you that in the state of Alabama, this is rampant. It is rampant to have people who are faithful in church attendance, but are completely bored with the Word of God. And as a result, they're completely ignorant of the Word of God. And, and, and that, I believe, is a 21st century example of what Jeremiah is taking on. And that's why a lot of pastors go into these churches and they open up this book and all hell breaks loose. I heard one preacher say in the South, you people claim to believe the good book. He said, because that... But the reason you say that is because you don't know what's in it. If you knew what was in it, you wouldn't believe it. And I think that's what Jeremiah is doing here. Judah had sown the wind and was now reaping the whirlwind. 
The Bible is clear that we reap what we sow. This is not karma. Karma is some kind of impersonal fate. Uh, fate. Uh, th- this is a God that is transcendent yet imminent that we are personally accountable to. Let me give you a few verses if you want to look these up. Proverbs 22, verse 8, Hosea 8, verse 7, Hosea 10, verse 12, Galatians 6, verses 7 to 8. Jerusalem is going to receive, notice, the fruit of their devices. Verse 19. That's what it means. Reap, reaping what they will sow. We will receive the fruit of our devices. Now notice in verse 20. What used to me is frankincense that comes from Sheba. Our sweet cane from a distant land. In some way, this frankincense, these exotic perfumes, which came from Saudi Arabia and what he calls sweet cane from distant lands, they were used somehow to spice up their worship. They were being used in the worship services. They were creative, evidently, and cutting edge. But their hearts were far from God. He says, your burnt offerings are not acceptable, nor your sacrifices pleasing to me. Now, God is not rejecting the sacrificial system. But the offerings were meaningless because they came from idolatrous people. They could not be substituted for faith and repentance. In other words, in the doing. By the fact that you're just your mere presence at one of these services could somehow appease God. They were using, evidently, these sacrifices, these offerings, as a means to buy God's favor. Which I think is the nature of religion. We, we were able to evangelize four or five Muslims on Wednesday night from Eastern Africa. And it was interesting because when we got to the conversation, that part of the conversation where we said that Islam is like every other religion in the world but Christianity that teaches you ascend your way to God through obedience and works. They had no issue with that. But then when we said Christianity teaches you can't do that because we are fundamentally sinful. And that if we are to be saved, it's because God descends to us by his grace. And one of the men looked at us and said, I don't understand. I don't understand. Something that we hear all the time in this church. Grace, marvelous grace, was not even something that he could conceive. I think that's the problem here. Just as it is in modern day Israel. They did not understand that their fundamental problem was their sin and their idolatry. And so the Lord warns he will turn this new road that they've honed for themselves into an obstacle course. Notice verse 21. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I will lay before this people stumbling blocks 
against which they will stumble. Fathers and sons together, neighbor and friend shall perish. It seemed like a good road when they started down on it. It was smooth and, and it was broad and it was a pleasurable experience. Such is the nature of sin and idolatry. But the further they proceeded down it, the narrower it became, the bumpier it became. Uh, I have never personally done drugs, but I was speaking to someone who has been redeemed out of that, and this person was telling me a couple of weeks ago that if you smoke a marijuana joint, it is a pleasurable experience, but in time, you smoke it just to feel normal, not to feel pleasure. You're just smoking it to feel normal because that's your new normal. And then you feel like you need to go to something even more stronger than marijuana. So it's a, it's a pure gateway. That's the way all sin is. That's just a good illustration. Because the initial experience of forbidden fruit is pleasurable. Hebrews talks about the passing pleasures of sin. And it seems like the good road. And you wonder why everyone else isn't on this road. But in time, you learn there are massive stumbling blocks, holes and pits on this road. And so, in verse 22, Jeremiah gets... Pretty graphic. Thus says the Lord. Behold a people is coming. From the north country. A great nation is stirring from the farthest parts. Of the earth. They lay hold on bow and javelin. They are cruel and have no mercy. The sound of them is like the roaring sea. They ride on horses, set in array as a man for battle against you, O daughter of Zion. Let me just say this. Under the Old Covenant, you have these physical events in time and space that speak to something that's even more horrific or something even greater down the road. These judgments that they're going to experience in time and space from the Babylonians are just a foretaste of something more horrific, a coming judgment that all of humanity will face. And so the daughter of Zion, that's the language that's used here, could hardly stand against this cruel and what he calls a merciless army of soldiers well-versed with the The bow and the javelin. Now, I don't want to get too graphic here, but I do want to share just a little bit of what historians tell us about the Babylonians. And you can include the Assyrians in this as well, who were well known for their cruel treatment of conquered peoples. Judah would have known this. I'm not going to say everything. 
but they would cut off the hands and the noses of prisoners. They would put out eyes. We see that. We'll see that in Jeremiah. Zedekiah's sons. They would impale bodies on spears. They would burn them in furnaces. We see that in the book of Daniel. Um, that's what the Babylonians and the Assyrians were known for. And so such were the Babylonians that even the scouting reports were enough to cripple Judah with fear. Notice in verse 24. We have heard the report of it. Our hands fall helpless. Anguish has taken hold of us. Pain is a woman in labor. Go not out into the field nor walk on the road for the enemy has a sword. Terror is on every side. O daughter of my people, put on sackcloth. This is language for repentance. Roll in ashes. Make mourning for an only son. Most bitter lamentation. For suddenly the destroyer will come upon us. And so living life on the wrong road for Judah is akin to the loss of an only son. <clears throat> the worst tragedy that could fall on an Israelite was the loss of an only son. Besides the obvious grief of losing a child, but it was through the son that a family name was perpetuated and property was passed down from, from one generation to the next. And so this was the highest of all tragedies. And unfortunately, we even with the knowledge that this is happening and will happen, it falls on deaf ears. That's why, let me just say this. When we evangelize, fear of hell is not sufficient. All right? No one goes to heaven just because they fear hell. The sinner certainly has to recognize a coming judgment that is real and eternal. But that in itself is not sufficient. I grew up going to revivals where the evangelist centered on these things. You may die on the, on the way home tonight. Could, could be the case. But a person is not converted until by the Spirit of God... They see Jesus as beautiful. And they see him as glorious. They see him as necessary. All right? And so it's, it's yes, fear, but it's also love and adoration that compels. Paul says it's the love of Christ that compels us, correct? 2 Corinthians 5. And so it's the sinner beholding this alien love. This alien mercy, a love that their hearts have longed for their entire lives. And so, yes, we, we preach that hell is real, that it's eternal, that it's conscious suffering. I believe that's what the Bible teaches. But it isn't sufficient to save a person. A person has to come to terms with their sin, that their sin deserves judgment and that God in His grace and mercy has made provision for that sinner's sin in the glorious and beautiful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the love of Christ, the sinner is compelled 
to repentance and faith. We're seeing here, now Jeremiah is, gonna, is going to bring the gospel, but here he's telling them the Babylonians are coming, they have no mercy, and it's going to be an army that is so loud it will make your ears hurt, and they're not moved by it. They're not moved by it. Such is the human heart. And that makes sense of what Jeremiah was called to be among the people. Notice in verse 27. This is God speaking to Jeremiah. I have made you a tester of metals among my people. That you may know and test their ways. How is Jeremiah a tester? He's not literally a furnace that tests metals, right? It's going to be by his word. The word of God is the great test of all tests. How does one respond to the word of God? So Jeremiah is the, is the prophet. He, he bears the word of God. And it's going to be that word that, that, that tests whether these metals are, are true. They are all stubbornly rebellious, going about with slanders. They, they are bronze and iron. All of them act corruptly. The bellows blow fiercely. So you get this picture of, of the furnace. The lead is consumed by the fire. In vain the refining goes on. For the wicked are not removed. Rejected silver, they are called, for the Lord has rejected them. They pose as silver, but the Word of God, the testing, the furnace, the fire of the Word of God reveals they're not silver, they're bronze and they're iron. Their hearts are cold, calloused like bronze and like iron. And therefore... They are rejected silver, and God has rejected them. The ore is, is far too adulterated to be worth further effort at refining. And I would submit this sad judgment has ominous overtones for the wicked in all ages who forget God. And I personally think that if a person has no plan to respond in the obedience of faith to the word of God, it would be better that they didn't come to church. I think it would be better that they avoid the people of God. They avoid the preaching of the word, the teaching of the word, because... To whom much is given, much is required. Jeremiah, notice, is not going after the Babylonians. There's a place for that. He's not going after the Assyrians. There's a place for that. They're under judgment too. We'll see that in other prophets and other prophecies. His biggest concern is with religious people who are playing a game. They look like silver until the fire, the testing 
of the Word of God comes to bear. And it turns out they weren't silver. They were silver-plated bronze and iron. Fake silver, or what he calls rejected silver. And I think there are many professing believers who assume they can have Jesus and the world simultaneously. Of course, the people of that day did not know Jesus. He had not come yet. But the sacrificial system was in play to prepare them for Jesus. So the sacrificial system, the the animals were offered to point them beyond themselves to one who would come and offer sacrifice once for all. In other words, the wages of sin is death and judgment comes on those animals in their place. But they were not seeing that in that way. They were offering these sacrifices as a means to curry favor with God while they had their feet on the path of the new way rather than the ancient path. And I believe there are many professing believers who think that they can have Jesus as their fire insurance and yet live worldly lives. Indeed, Derek Kidner gives his thought on Jeremiah's testing of materials. It emerges that the people of Judah are not, so to speak, precious metal marred by some impurities, but base metal from which nothing of worth can be extracted. Now, if that can be true of them, surely it's true of the American church culture. Now, I personally think at Fisherville, we have a high, high percentage of people here who are committed to the gospel, committed to the things of God, who live lives of, of repentance, who, who are blameless, who live lives above reproach, who keep a short account with God and a short account with man. So I'm not picking on you per se. I think it's a problem in the American church. Because we have a high percentage, relatively speaking, of people who are churched, but we see very little holiness. We see very little righteousness. When was the last time someone even tried to share their, their faith with you? Not knowing who you are, not knowing that you're already a Christian, they come up to you and tried to evangelize you. That's unfortunate. I, I don't remember anyone doing that recently for me, with me. You'd think as many church-going Christians that we have in this culture that you would be evangelized often where you would say, brother, I'm already a Christian. Praise God. I had a Russ Lee who went to a, a laundromat recently. He's actually a, a cleaners. And the Asian man working there said, can I tell you about Jesus? And Russ Lee said, I already know him. <laughs> but he walked away convicted because he recognized he was not as fervent in his faith as this, this Asian man. I think it's a real problem. And that's why this text is so important. He's speaking to religious people just like the American church. Very religious but unrepentant. 
That's a real issue when religion covers up a heart that is stone cold to the point where it's described as bronze and iron. And so this is a sober warning to everyone who stands at the crossroads and wonders which road to choose. The only safe way is to walk in the way of the Word of God. Now, I want to close with an interesting passage that quotes this passage. If you look back in verse 16, kind of heads up this passage. He says, Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. Do you realize that this is quoted in the New Testament? Turn over to Matthew chapter 11. I can remember before I was converted, walking into my dentist office in Enterprise and Matthew 11 verses 27 or 28 and verses 29 were up framed above the door as you walked into the dentist office. And I can remember reading that and my heart being warmed by that beautiful truth, though I was still unconverted. But here's what it says. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Scholars believe that Jesus is alluding to this mandate in chapter 6, verse 16 of Jeremiah. Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. The good way, the ancient path, leads to a person. Jesus is saying to those who are weary and heavy laden, I am the destination of the ancient path. You come to me, you won't have to go looking for rest. You'll find it ultimately and finally in me. Of course, we know that ultimately it would come by a cross and a resurrection. As Christ suffers the sin that we deserve, suffers for sin that we deserve, and was raised from the grave, and in that resurrection, he inaugurates Sabbath rest. He, he inaugurates the Sabbath rest that our hearts long for in his resurrection. The new creation is the Sabbath rest for the believer. And one day, that Sabbath rest is going to be universal in scope. Every nook and cranny of this world will be one big Sabbath rest. And yet, we can find that now by coming to Him. He is the destination of the ancient path. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the ancient path that leads us to the way.
the truth and the life, the Lord Jesus Christ. May we diligently pursue that path and believe that it is the good way every moment of our lives. And may we be diligent to take others there as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed.